If you would uh, take out your Bibles and let us turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll be uh, looking today at verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God will endure forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. And ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, God, that you would be with this your servant as the word is preached. Pray that what is said represents your mind and rightly dividing your word, that we would learn from you, that your gospel would be clear to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If we were to do a a man-on-the-street kind of interview of professing Christians and ask them simply, how is the Christian to live? That was the question we were to ask. How is the Christian to live? I, I would imagine that we may get a variety of answers. There's a number who might say, Something along the lines of, uh, you know, just be good. You know, do, do good. Work, work hard to be nice and decent. Try to do more good things than bad. There's some who would say something like that. Others might say that the Christian life should be one devoted to contemplative prayer. In other words, live like a hermit. Stay in your prayer closet. Others might say that the Christian is one who feeds the poor and helps the hurting, and so you just need to go out and and serve people like that. Still others might say that the Christian is one who is evangelizing all the time, and so a real Christian is one who is always evangelizing everyone they meet. And finally, there will be some who say that the Christian can do whatever he likes because, well, Jesus paid it all. Now, not all of these responses are horrible or totally wrong. Some of them have truth in them. Mostly, each of these answers is incomplete. The Christian is one who has been saved by grace through faith. He or she ought to be one of high character. They ought to be one who is devoted to prayer. They we ought to be those who help those who are downtrodden and hurting. We ought to be those who share the hope we have in Christ with our neighbor. In short, the Christian ought to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. As Paul says in our text, 
Now, up to this point in our letter, and and actually Dr. Horstman alluded to this during Sunday school, um, up to this point in Ephesians, we have seen the indicatives of of the Christian life. These are the things which God has done. The first three chapters of Ephesians really is about that. It's about the gospel. It's about how God has saved us in Christ. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. We were predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We have been lavished with spiritual insights and wisdom. And we've been given the riches of God in Christ. The formerly dead because of sin have been made alive in Jesus Christ. We've been given the gift of faith. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit. The alien and stranger has now been brought near. And there is now unity among God's people. These are all things that have been talked about in the first three chapters. These are the indicatives of the Christian life. These are the things which God has done for us. But now, in chapter 4, Paul turns his attention to what we might call the responses of the Christian life. How the Christian is to live in light of these truths. Remember, because of the things which God has done, we are to respond to Him First of all, in praise and and glory, but also in how we live our everyday life. Our good works are the result of a transformed life in Christ. And so what the Apostle does here is list for us some of the various virtues of the Christian life. And and we know that they are a response to what has come before because we see immediately the word, therefore. Therefore. Therefore, as a result of all the things that have been said up to this point, walk now in a manner worthy of your calling. And so Paul is exhorting the Ephesians to live a life of holiness. And so this is where we are picking up in our study. We've, again, first three chapters, we've talked about the indicatives of the Christian life. And so now we turn now to the responses, which come often these uh, come in the form of imperatives or commands to us. Now, Paul was called to be a prisoner for the Lord. His life as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a Christian, was a life of suffering. He had endured scorn. He had endured beatings and opposition at every turn. And so when he pens this letter, he was, in, he was a prisoner. He was counted worthy to suffer for the, on, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, as we talked about in our study in Ephesians, although Paul was a prisoner, this was not the end of his ministry. It's not like he had his church ministry and then he gets arrested and he's like, oh, oh well, I guess my ministry is over. No, Paul tra- tra- transformed his ministry into a prison ministry. It didn't matter where he was. He was going to seek to proclaim the gospel. And so he, he proclaimed the gospel of Christ to anybody who would listen to him. You and I have been blessed to live in relative comfort and peace. We enjoy great freedom of movement and of person. We don't know how long that may last. 
It could remain for the rest of all of our lives, the lives of our children. It could be, it could be taken tomorrow. We don't know how long that will last, but the Lord has blessed us with this. But whatever we're called to, as Christians, we ought to orient our lives in such a way as to live consistent with that which Christ has called us to. Namely, we are to walk in holiness. Regardless of our personal circumstances, regardless of what our life may look like, we have to strive to live in accordance with God's revealed will to us. His revealed will, of course, is given to us in His Word. Now Paul, of course, is being very practical here. Remember, he's writing to the church. He's a pastor. He's being very pastoral in his exhortation to them. He is giving a far-reaching admonition to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. But notice that it is more far-reaching than simply a list of rules. Paul's not saying, you know, live holy lives, so here's your list of your do's and don'ts, and then, you know, you'll be fine. That's, he's, he's giving us principles of life. We we walk worthy of our calling when we live consistent with our confession of faith. We live like a Christian ought to live. Paul's exhorting you and me to live in a way which looks radically different from the rest of the world. A way which impacts our daily lives. When we live consistent with our confession of faith, we don't simply say, well, I did my church thing. I came, you know, hour, well, you know, Covenant Reformed Church usually goes hour and 15, hour and a half, you know. Man, that pastor talks a lot sometimes, right? But, but after that, you know, you know, I'm better than the guy down the street. I got an hour. We got an hour and a half. So, but I'm good after this, right? It's not, it's not living consistent with the Christian life. Just If that's our attitude, that's, if that's what we think that's all the Christian life is, is showing up on Sunday. We live a life consistent with our confession, what it is we believe about Jesus. And it impacts everything we do every day, not just on the Lord's Day. So much so, in fact, that we may suffer as a result of living in this way. We might become uncomfortable. You might be in your workplace and they discover you're a Christian and they they mock you and scorn you. Oh, you're a goody-two-shoes, are you? We may have to die to our own selfish desires. I think as we consider our brothers and sisters in the faith being persecuted and, you know, sort of right now, live in our own time, we have brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are dying for the faith, being persecuted because they call Jesus Lord. It should be very instructive for us. We're not facing death, but are we going to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? To live worthy is to live in a way which balances the scales. This is literally what the word means, worthy. Uh, It's translated for us, worthy. That's what it means, to balance the scales. This speaks of our personal conduct. 
If we are called to life in the local church, and here you are, by the way, in the local church, right? So it turns out that's the life you're called to. Then we need to live in a way that is consistent with that calling. The Christian is called to live conformed to the image of Christ because he or she has been inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit. As believers, then, transformed by the Holy Spirit, new creatures in Christ, we're then also called to live as a family together, as children of God. And interactions marked by holiness, interactions marked with humility, interactions with our fellow believers of mutual forbearance, brotherly affection. In fact, this is how Paul describes living worthily. It is to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's verses 2 and 3. So here we have a list of virtues which then exhibit walking in a manner worthy of our calling. And so first on the list that Paul gives us is humility. Now what is humility? Oh, it's lowly thinking. It is esteeming ourselves as little and yet recognizing the power of God at work in us. This happens when we recognize the fact that we are sinners who have been saved by grace. It is a humbling experience to really come face to face with that. When we realize that we are in fact not worthy of heaven. You're not worthy of heaven in and of yourself. It's not to drive us to our knees. We're not, in, we're not worthy of the internal, uh, eternal inheritance. Now, first three chapters, right? Told you all of the spiritual blessings which have been lavished on you, right? And you, don't, you didn't earn any of that. You're not worthy of that. Jesus is worthy of that. And yet you have it by grace. That, uh, that, that's humbling to realize that. You have an inheritance, an eternal inheritance that you don't really deserve at all. In fact, what we've earned by our thoughts, our words, and our deeds is not an eternal inheritance. We've earned an eternity of hell and damnation. That's actually what we've earned. This ought to humble us. You and I are nothing in comparison to a holy and righteous God who is judge, who is a consuming fire. And so one way we may exhibit humility is when we recognize that the creator-creature distinction. God made all that there is, and we are in fact creatures made by His hand. This reality ought to drive us to our knees, ought to cause within us a spirit of thanksgiving and a desire to bless God, to praise Him, and also to bless God's people. When you walk worthy of the calling, consistent with your calling, you are humble. You, you recognize that you are here by the grace of God. 
You understand the reality of your life. You know who you are. You know what you deserve before a holy and righteous God. And you are aware of the magnificent grace which has been poured out on you abundantly, lavished on you in Christ. This was actually Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. We saw this in the previous section. He prayed that the Spirit would help the Ephesians to comprehend the magnitude of God's love for them in Christ. When you comprehend the magnitude of God's love poured out on you in Christ, I mean, when you really stop and consider that, that is humbling. When you are spirit changed, when you are spirit transformed, when you are a new creature in Christ like that, having been strengthened in the inner being, you are humble, humble before the face of Almighty God. And so the Christian who walks in a manner worthy of calling in Christ walks in humility, not taking pride in themselves, not saying, look at how smart I am. I've got all my theology right. I've got this all figured out. I'm pretty awesome. Anybody who thinks that way does not have their theology right. They don't understand the holiness of God. They don't understand God's grace. By the way, it's a tragedy when Reformed people are are accused of that. In some cases, walk that way. They may know theology in the book... But they don't really believe it. It's a danger for us. We're to walk in humility. The second virtue listed is gentleness. Humility and now gentleness. The one walking in a worthy word a word a manner worthy of his calling is humble and gentle. Now, gentleness has to do with meekness. Being gentle with others, not being harsh, not being cruel. One who is gentle is one who cares the needs of others, treats others with great kindness, love. Gentleness is not pushy. Come on, why don't you just get it? It's not gentleness. Gentleness does not run roughshod over others. It's patient and winsome. Now, some may confuse gentleness with weakness. Gentleness is not weakness. The Christian is not a weak person cowering. Oh, so scared of everything in the world. One who is gentle, on the contrary, is one who finds their strength in the Lord. You don't need to be pushy. You don't need to try to get your way because you trust in the Lord. You can be gentle, seeking others in that way. One who is gentle speaks and acts mildly towards others, not harsh towards others. When you're offended, the humble and the gentle one patiently overlooks an offense, free from malice, free from a desire for revenge. Jesus speaks to the importance of this in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
And so the Bible commends to us an attitude of gentleness and of meekness. Next, we're called to the virtue of patience. Patience is being long-suffering. Things don't go your way all the time, do they? You may suffer. You may suffer with your brother or sister in faith, right? But you're going to endure it. It's a disposition which suppresses anger. It is having a long or non-existent fuse. In the scriptures, when this word is typically used, it's used in context of God delaying His wrath. The word that's translated here really has to do with how God has delayed His wrath. God was patient with the nations. God is patient with the nations. He could at any moment destroy all of His enemies, anytime He wanted to. He's he's long-suffering. He's patient. God is patient toward us. God has been patient towards us. Thus, we ought to be patient toward one another. We are to forbear with one another. We're not to be quick to be angry because we don't get our way, because we don't get our what we want. We see this a lot, of course, in children. They took my toy. They won't give it back. Well, adults do the same thing, don't we? But that's not walking in a manner worthy of our calling, is it? Finally, Paul adds, bearing with one another in love. Now, this is, in a sense, a catch-all phrase to the previous three virtues. When we're bearing with one another in love, we're restraining ourselves in love. We are loving our neighbor as ourself. Humility, gentleness, and long-suffering are all manifested in our mutual forbearance with one another because we love one another. Love ought to drive our forbearance. Our selfish desires are restrained over against our love for the brethren. When our selfish desires, you know, sort of manifest themselves and we want what we want because we want it. James talks about this as the reason we murder, right? We murder in our hearts. It's because we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We love ourselves above all else. In fact, when we do that, we don't love God either. We love ourselves. We've made an idol. It's in our own form. And we bow down to it in our hearts. This is not... This is not forbearance. This is not love. It's the opposite of love. So the Ephesians are being exhorted to to live out the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, there's a... Uh, It's very similar. You may notice a lot of similarities between what Paul has here in Ephesians 4 and what he wrote in Galatians chapter 5. We know the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And so the Christian who walks in a manner worthy of his calling is the same as walking in step with the Spirit. It's the same thing that Paul's talking about in Galatians chapter 5. They will exhibit particular characteristics, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And they will seek to do this because they belong to Jesus Christ. They have the Holy Spirit in them. They have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, our adopted children. And thus will seek to crucify the desires of the flesh and live for the Lord. And because this is true, there is one more attitude that they will exhibit, and that is an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The transformed new creature united to the Savior is also going to be one who seeks unity with his fellow redeemed. You're going to want to be united. You're going to to dislike disunity. Now this this unity, the theme of unity, comes up actually quite a bit in Ephesians. Because unity among Christians is so crucial. And by the way, we're not talking about a manufactured unity. We're not talking about, you know, go along to get along. We're not going to be like, I'm united with this person, even though they make me so angry. That's not really much unity, is it? It's not seeking peace where there is no peace either. It's not compromising the truth for the sake of unity. Well, I, you know, this person is teaching things contrary to the word of God, but, you know, we just want peace. That's not unity either. We're talking about true unity. Unity in the truth of the gospel. Unity in the one faith. Unity in the one Lord. Unity in one baptism. We have a unity with one another in the Holy Spirit who is the author of our unity because we are one people as the body of Christ as the body of Christ. You see, everyone who is a Christian has the indwelling Holy Spirit. In fact, without the Holy Spirit, one cannot even be called a Christian. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit. This is contrary, by the way, to some who teach that there's some sort of, you know, second blessing of the Spirit, like, you know, Holy Spirit sort of shows up later in your life. No, no, if you're a believer in Jesus, you immediately, at the moment of conversion, because you've been transformed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit lives in you. So if anybody asks you, oh, are you a Spirit-filled person? Yeah, of course I am. And so our unity is rooted not in us. It is in the Lord. Because we are in Him. That's where our unity is found. Because we are united to Him, and we we are together, it is the Spirit of God then which unites us. 
And because this is true, because it is God who unites us by His Spirit, we ought to then be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We should be eager to live out together the reality of the Spirit's presence within us. That ought to excite us. The reality of the Spirit in us brings about the bond of peace, which is to say our unity in the Spirit is the glue which binds us together as brothers and sisters. When we have the Spirit, we will then desire to follow the commands of the Lord, which is to love. And when we love, we will be humble, we will be gentle, we will be long-suffering with one another. We will bear one another's burdens. These virtues actually flow together and are essential components of our union and communion together as members of the household of God and the body of Christ. This all flows out of the fact that we are spirit-filled people. God has made peace with us in Christ, thus we can have peace with one another. As fellow believers. The enmity with us and God is over because Jesus took care of that. There's no reason for us to be at enmity with one another, then, is there? And so when we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, we will walk in unity together, for in Christ, you and I are brothers and sisters. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. When one weeps, we all weep. When one suffers, we all suffer. And why do we do this? I mean, why are these virtues important? Why is, why is living this way so important? Why, why is Paul making a big deal out of this? Why is the Christian to walk in a manner worthy of their calling? Because, verse 4, there is one body, one spirit. You see, it turns out unity is important. Now, consider for a moment what Paul is doing here. Having already urged the importance of preserving the unity of the body, he now gives the grounds of that unity. The unity which the Christian enjoys is a unity which comes and is rooted in the fact that there is and can only be one body, one spirit, one hope, one baptism, and one God. You see that? Paul's not exhorting us to do better. He's not saying, you know, Ephesians, you guys just need to work harder and do better. This is not what he's exhorting them. He's declaring to them the reality. Think about this for a second. How many churches are there in the world? How many bodies? How many churches just in West Plains? There is but one body of Christ. No, we are here, but a small expression of the body, but there is one body of Christ. One. So what we're talking about here is the universal church. The church of Jesus Christ, which proclaims the true gospel. 
And, and notice, again, he's not saying, hey, guys, you know, let's, let's try to be one body if we can. You know? This would be really great if we could just sort of be the body. He's not inviting us to become the body. He's not saying, well, you know, there's too many bodies running around here, you know, and so we just need to, let's kind of get everyone together, let's all be one body of Christ. No, he's saying there is one body of Christ. If you are in Christ, then you're in the body. You're in that one body. We are already in union with believers everywhere in the world. We're in union with believers in Afghanistan. We're in union with believers in Haiti. We're in union with believers in Mozambique. We're in union with believers in West Plains, Missouri, who don't worship in this congregation. Because there is and can only be one body of Christ. There is one universal church. Christ is not divided into various parts. There's not, you know, various bodies of Christ. Now, you might be sitting here and think, now, okay, but wait a minute. Aren't there a bunch of different denominations? Isn't that really Christ being divided? Aren't, aren't there a bunch of different churches in town here? Isn't that really a division? Shouldn't, shouldn't the whole of West Plains all worship in one space? Really going to be one body? Is Christ divided? You know, with fellow believers that we know, and all of us know believers that are part of other, other churches, other denominations, we may attend different churches, we may have different organizations from other believers, but we are no less God's united people. This is why... Right ecumenicity is so important. This is why we, we need to act like one body. Even if, even if we are in varying churches and denominations, there, there may be you know, secondary or tertiary issues which, which we disagree over. But with those who believe in the gospel, there is only one body. There is one body of Christ. And so we should be willing to seek out and, and, and work with those who believe as we do. Because all believers in Jesus Christ are members of His body. There are not many. There's one. Our Confession of Faith, I think, is helpful in this regard. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, in paragraph 2, says this. And I'll just read it to you. Quote, The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. End quote. So our own confession of faith states that there is a universal church, the visible church, is all those who are united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the church is not just you know, an external organization. It is a spiritual body of which Jesus Christ is the head. 
And so just as there is one body, verse 4, there is also one Spirit. By one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says this, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. So Christians are baptized into one Spirit. We all have the same indwelling Holy Spirit. We're one body. It doesn't matter your ethnic background or your national origin. It doesn't matter your social status. It doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. These are not the determining factors of whether you're in the kingdom. These are not what make you the children of God. If you are in Christ, you are united to Him, then you are a member of the same body with Christ as head and king. And so again, Paul, throughout his letter, is pressing this theme of Christian unity. He even explains this unity even further at the end of verse 4. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And believers are one body of one spirit because we have the same hope. Now, what is our hope? What are you hoping in? What is the hope of your calling? You know, it's the hope of the gospel. The saving message of salvation found in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if you're trusting and resting in Christ, then your hope is the hope of glory. The salvation from sin, the the hope of eternal life and glory with God. Because Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh, was born into this world. He, he, He fulfilled every aspect of the law perfectly. He was put to death by the hands of evil men. He rose again from the dead in victory over sin and death. Your hope and my hope can only be found in Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our hope. And so the unity that is the reality for the Christian then is rooted in the fact that we are called together and made to be one body as the people of God with one hope. We're filled with the same Holy Spirit. We have the same faith. We've been baptized with the same baptism. There is but one Lord and one God who is Father of all, is over all, through all. In all. Beloved, here is the grounds of church unity. What this means is that there cannot be true unity with people who deny the things which we affirm. We cannot have unity with those who deny the doctrines of, say, the doctrine of the deity of Christ. We can't have union with those who would deny the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot have union with people who would deny the Trinity. Because doctrine does matter. Our unity is found in our common faith as we are members of the same household, the same Father as God. We are governed by one Lord But this Father is not just over us, He is in us and through us. 
There's a, there's a filling and life-sustaining presence of God for the Christian. This is how we, have, this is how we can have unity. And so in this passage, we also see that each member of the Trinity is bearing witness to our unity. One Spirit, one Lord, and one God and Father. And so the unity of the church is founded on the doctrine of the Trinity and the reality of the perfect unity which exists within the Godhead. God has perfect unity within Himself, and He has given to us unity as well, a unity which we should be eager to maintain. But we started out this morning asking the question, how does the Christian live? The Christian is to live in such a way as to be consistent with his or her profession of faith. That profession of faith is really important. You profess that you love Jesus, that he is your Savior. So we're to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Because we've been called by Christ to faith in him. And since the Christian is a blood-bought, transformed son... There are ways in which he or she is to walk in this world, namely in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity which exists among Holy Spirit-filled people, which is the glue or bond of our peace. And the grounds for this unity is the reality that there is one body, one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. And so we're to live consistent with this reality in our relationship to God and Christ. But how does this look practically for us here at Covenant Reformed? The Lord, is, the Lord has been so good to us. God has grown this body even through difficult times in our community. God has sustained us. We, we enjoy great unity and love among the saints here. There's so much we have to be thankful for, don't we? In fact, this means that all the more we need to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. I think one of the reasons that the Church of Jesus Christ, particularly here in America, has failed to fulfill the Great Commission is because we are distracted by so many other things, so many other projects. We've become disunited over, to use the, the word that Dave Pendergrass used yesterday, fluff. We've been distracted by fluff. The American Evangelical Church has become complacent and self-centered. We have to admit, we're children of our culture. We are Americans, right? We're Christians, but we also are citizens of this nation. It's very easy to become like the rest of the world around us. A little too easy, isn't it? Beloved, don't be conformed to the world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Be eager to maintain a unity. Don't, don't be distracted by the fluff of this world. Because when the church of Jesus Christ is united as one body and is eager to maintain that unity, then we can be effective stewards of God's grace to the watching world around us. 
And this is not just something for the officers of the church. This is not just something for, you know, elders and pastors. This is for all of us. All of us who hold the general office of believer. To walk worthy of a manner, worthy of your calling. Because your neighbor is watching. When the church is disunited, the world sees that. And it makes our, it makes our outreach... It doesn't really work, does it? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We do confess, God, that we are very inconsistent. That we often do not walk in a manner worthy of our calling to which we've been called. Father, we pray that you'd help us in this. That your spirit would continue to be at work in our hearts and our lives. That we would be humble gentle and patient. That we would be eager to maintain unity with one another. We thank you, God, for the peace which you have given to us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the unity that you give to us by your Spirit. We thank you for the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would live consistent with that profession that we may be effective stewards, that we may serve you, that we would be good witnesses to a world which is watching. Help us, we pray. We thank you, God, for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.